Hello and welcome to Arid Podcast. Arid is a raw, unscripted podcast offering conversations between an artist and a philosopher. In this podcast, you can expect us to uproot, unpick, and redefine contemporary modes of thinking within the South African context. In each episode, we will do so by making eclectic use of various cultural text and theoretical disciplines. I'm Nicolien Berger. And I'm Jana Vosloer. And this is Eret. Today we will be talking about, or we will be asking the question, how can we consider the project of queering religion and spirituality? And we are joined here today with another guest, Ashwin. So Ashwin Afrikaner Tyson is a theologian studying at Stellenbosch University. Uh, he's doing his PhD and Ashwin identifies as ontologically black, existentially queer, and spiritually Christian. Um, just on a personal side note, I probably have to say that uh, I also come from a home of, of theologians with my father and my stepmother, but that's where my theological knowledge begins and ends. Um, so Ashwin, I want to start and just ask you, maybe you can briefly tell us a bit about how through your research and your life experience, you have arrived at this way of describing yourself. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm honored to be able to share this space, um, with you, Nicolene and Jana. Um, funny enough, your father's actually my supervisor, <laughs> has been my supervisor for a few years now. So I, so I grew up in. I grew up in Cape Town and um, I mean, I've always known that I was queer. Um, I identify as, as gay, but I prefer the, queer to, the term queer more politically. So I grew up in Cape Town as a queer person, also aware of how race plays a certain role in the Cape Town metropole. Um, and so quite early in my life, I was confronted with questions about race, questions about um, sexuality, and that sort of provided me with certain lenses to make my way through life and by the time I was in my teens I was really excited about church life and I really wanted to become this very you know very good Christian by becoming a duomini of some sort and the pastor and then um, by like the age of 69 years I was going to study theology and become a pastor and then um, by the time I reached university my first year was 2015 and Christmas Fall hit campuses across the nation. And then again, I was confronted with questions of race, questions of sexuality, um, and also in very pronounced ways, questions of gender mm -hmm. and how our gender was sort of a default for me because I'm a cisgender man. Mm -hmm. And so in that time, 2015-16, in that time, I then just, I sort of had to deal with my identity and my identity politics. And that is how I came to this construction of myself as ontologically black, existentially queer, and spiritually Christian. Um, also, thinking back now, I, I now recognize that those terms are more fluid than I thought they were at the time when I sort of used this phrase to myself. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm really excited to like dive deeper into, like you say, the flexibility of the terms and like really unpack what it means and what it can mean and like the kind of ambiguities around them. Because I think our podcast also focuses a lot recently on the complexities and ambiguities around these kind of terms that we use to describe ourselves. And so one thing aspect that I want us to dig into now that's quite interesting is if you look at the canon of art history and you look at the way that Jesus and biblical scenes have been depicted in art history like the classics you know like the the uh, the, the the frescoes in the cathedrals there's a very big focus on um white male representation mm. right and that obviously had an influence on the public archive because even after the kind of classical more centered art history on the western side people still today depict jesus and biblical scenes with a focus on on white male figures so um, what is the significance, do you think, um, to consider God or Jesus queer or to, to, or black and queer? And how does this serve to rewrite the public archive? Like, what do you make of the intersectionality when it comes to the depictions of God? Thank you so, so much. So, um, my, my previous, my master's thesis was on, focused much on, on, on Christ and, and, and the church and how does one queer the church community. And quite present in that was this focus on um, on Christ and how Christ sort of forms community. And at the end of it, um, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer defined the church as Christ existing as community. And then I sort of paraphrased it from the research. I eventually got the idea that um, the church is Christ querying the existence of community. Mm. And and now with my PhD, the topic is... Um, constructing a black and queer theological anthropology and i mean i'm basically my first year also but the, i'm getting the, the idea that how one constructs god sort of informs how one constructs anthropology and if we and you, you referring to the western canon um if we construct christ in a certain um cisgender male um, white body, then we construct God in that image, and then that leaves a lot of limits to how people can identify with this God, mm. um, especially given the history of, of of various sections of the world. I mean, if you if in South Africa if you construct Christ in that way, it becomes a colonial God. Mm. Um, I, I think when you mentioned the, the the canon, I thought immediately of um, Stephen Biko's in his I write what I like. There's a, a essay, an essay. Um, letter to clergy clergymen something there but mm -hmm. then he says when christ was transported from jerusalem to brussels to to geneva to rome christ morphed into various things but all of a sudden when christ came to cape to the cape then it was stratified rigid there was no more fluidity going on mm. uh yeah so so i think there's a lot of limitations involved it prevents or creates a boundary that wouldn't allow all people to identify Mm. With Christ and with God, because their identities are not um, not subsumed, but are not taken up in in Him mm. or in them. Wow, yeah, that's so interesting. And if we come back to the question that we ask in this episode and in this kind of airing it out section of what does it mean, um, it it comes back to the question also of what does it mean to 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 queer theology. Um, and and how that would um, be able to provide different narratives or, or um, 
also tap into, like you say, this liminal space. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to think about also, maybe it's like the philosophy side of, in terms of just conceptually, what it means to, to queer and especially uh, I'm thinking of like even just the etymology of the word queer as this idea of strangeness or, or difference, but then also the way it has been appropriated in, yeah. in, in popular culture and current theoretical discourses as a more positive term in terms of queer community. And then also maybe just in terms of saying how theology and queering go together. So if you talk about your research lens as queer theology, I mean, just to say even what does a theologist do and then also what does a queer theologist then do. Um, so maybe just like demystifying what goes on there when we say we want to talk about queering religion or spirituality. You know, this is a very good question because it actually boils down to methods. And one thing I've learned is that I know so little about methodologies. And um, I mean, as one goes on and one becomes more aware of the field, you, you, I realize I know much less than um, but I think even the, the space of encountering that one knows so little is already an invitation to, to unlearn and learn new things, mm -hmm. which liminal spaces are, I think, where queer theology tries to, um, tries to construct itself, mm -hmm. um, tries to, because it becomes the whole notion of being and becoming where I think that is what queer, queer theory and queer theology is trying to do. Um, focusing on the becoming, on the rupturing that takes place in liminal spaces. Uh, so, you know, I think for me, when it comes to queer, queer theology, I mean, there's a history. So there's sort of a history that develops into queer theology. There was at the stage, at the time of the 1960s with the sexual revolution, there was this focus on homosexual theology where it was focused primarily on gay men and lesbian women. And then in time, it sort of became more embracing of, of other forms of sexuality and genders. And then by the late 90s, we have the, um, the Latin American theologian, um, Marcella Altas Reed, uh, who then sort of tries to imagine God in a much more queer way. Uh, she uses Derrida quite a lot, which I find extremely dense, but helpful. <laughs> Um, and then with her publication of Indecent Theology and A Queer God, she sort of creates this, this is for me the most helpful, she creates this presentation of a bi-Christ. Um, mm -hmm. The only way for, for Christ to be for all people is if Christ is, I guess, bisexual, pansexual, then all people can relate to Christ in that way. So I'm using that as a bridge to say that what the queer theologian, what a queer theologian, tries to do is to do theology for and in community. Mm. Um, so that is alongside other people as participants. Um, queer theology is also very biographical. I think um, for the largest part of the Western theological canon, there's been this um, hesitancy to do theological work that is biographical, that focuses on the self. Um, but now there's this movement, especially with, with feminist theology, there was this movement to focus on the, on the, on this, on, on one's self as subject. And then additionally, queer theology goes beyond or tries to use community and, and to move to focusing on notions of intersectionality mm -hmm. and 
applying intersectionality, Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality with um, notions of hybridity and how then fundamentally one comes to the conclusion that identities and identity markers are much more fluid than we'd like to think mm. or that society would, li- would like us to think. Mm. Queer theology then, from the queer theology, the methods involved is very beca- becoming comfortable with discomfort, mm. um, destabilizing the binaries, mm. and then trying to do it in community and trying to do it reflexively. Mm. Can I just say, on the point of reflexivity, I've had, I've had a, a metanoia moment recently, the last few days. I've been going through my master's thesis, the reference list, and I, I mean, my thesis was on, it specializes in gender and gender and health. And I was, I become so, I become so upset with myself because most of the scholars I referenced, or most of the people I referenced were men. So I did an entire thesis on that sort of focuses on gender and sexuality. And still, there was this limitation because for me, I'm doing theology in the default, which is usually men. I didn't even recognize that. So queer theology really challenges me to do things more reflexively, to focus Mm -hmm. on how I have privilege and to account for my privilege. Mm. That's so interesting. And I I also think um, a lot about what you said in the previous question um, about how when God came to, to, to Cape Town or to South Africa, changed completely. And, and I mean, in South Africa, we are so aware of the role of the Ingekerk, for example, in, in like playing this very distinct political role in establishing the Afrikaner identity, like specifically like concretizing the heteronormative narrative, you know, like as how um, it's intertwined with the state and the church. So it's no secret that like queer and Christian, uh, like queer theory of being queer and being a Christian in our country has a lot of like uh, complications complications around you know there's a lot of arguments and conflicts around how that is allowed and um staying as objective again and as personal as you want to go i'm interested in how you were able to reconcile this kind of conflict that's outside like within the community and within the congregation and disagreeing mm-hmm. as a community on how being queer and being christian can be reconciled how are you able to build that bridge for yourself like like you said you you knew from a really young age that you wanted to go into um theology as a study and you were also aware of your your sexuality and like uh, your preferences and and how were you able then to like with this kind of bravery and this vulnerability then go into this study knowing that the community that you're Study is now going to focus on as a as a queer theologist um, is like really contested on these issues. I thank you. I think um, I think what really helped me a great deal was um, friends mm-hmm. or chosen family. Um, they kept me grounded. They kept me grounded in ways that are too profound for language to articulate. Uh, so I well, I knew from young age. I went. I started studying in two thousand and fifteen. Um, 2015 was also the year, so I'm part of the United Reformed Church, which is problematically termed a, sis, a daughter church of the Ingekerk, the Dutch Reformed Church. Mm. And um, so we're very much affected by each other's political mm. movements. Mm. Um, so 2015, I started by November, October 2015, the Ingekerk had just decided that they would license and ordain LGBTI plus people. Um, so all of us, Stellenbosch being the home of the Henrik Theological Seminary, we were all celebrating. Um, 
And then, I mean, I mean, I recall very vividly, many people came out that time. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, then a year later, 2016, they reversed the decision and then came years later, the court case and all of that. But throughout, it was a very, it was a tough period for me to make sense of my call to ministry and my call to the Theological Academy in this very tumultuous space that, I mean, the church life is, I mean, it's, it's been, it's been very embracing of, it embraces people, but it embraces people on specific terms. I would have to sort of perform my masculinity in ways, I'd have to wear a suit when I preach and a tie. I'd have to perform my masculinity in ways that are all acceptable. And I'd have to not be as upfront about my sexuality as a straight person would. So what sustained me during that time was the knowledge that my friends were in support of me. I have an amazing mother who has supported my call to ministry and my, has supported me and embraced me. That has been very amazing. And then also, funny enough, with all of the complexity involved in studying at Stellenbosch, the Stellenbosch Faculty of Theology was really a place, a place of unlearning and learning. Um, where we had to deal with questions of sexuality and how we would possibly care for people who have diverse sexualities and genders and also how we would take a congregation to a place where they could affirm all people. Um, so, so those are the two. So community was basically the thing that kept me going. That's the petrol on my fire. It's amazing that, uh, like you said in your answer about what is queer theology, that, that it centers around community and that community was also the thing that helped you to get to that point where you can actually further the study for the community. So it's, it's, it's just beautiful that it yeah. begins with that and it like continues with that. Yeah, and on a similar note, first I just need a disclaimer, like someone is literally building Noah's Ark above my head here. <laughs> um, so, uh, excuse it probably makes now. sense. It probably makes sense in the midst of a pandemic to build an ark there. Exactly. <laughs> it has to be. It's apocalypse vibes going on here. Um, but, um, so excuse the background noises, but I was also reminded of how um, Judith Butler also talks about how, how she links queer and alliance um, because of, of the, the fact, like I said, with that idea of difference being inherent in the term queer and how it already um, speaks to the idea of community, albeit a, a difficult alliance or an uneasy community. Um, I, I think it's, it's really nice how that links up in your personal narrative as well. Um, and I was I also, I think I, I briefly read on your blog <laughs> um, where you also spoke about your own experiences and um, you reflected a little bit on this phrase like, love the sinner, hate the sin, as like some of the, 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 the lexicon that's often used um, when talking about queerness in the church. And um, I know Nicolene also has some ideas surrounding that, but I was, yeah, I was thinking about that as well in, in your conversation now and, and how, we, how maybe a queer theology can problematize notions like that. You know, I think I've come to the conclusion all the more that one of the conclusions I'm observing all the more that churches aren't best suited to deal with the challenges of our present time. When I, I'm, when I talk about churches, I mean as an institution now. 
Um, the language used by the church in general seems to be very archaic. And I'm, and this is because I'm still a theologian, so I still, in some sense, want to, I still want to hold to, I find beautiful in tradition. But the language used is so, it's so unhelpful for what we're trying to do right now in society broadly. So I found, I find that the church is, is, is it becomes a very problematic space to sort of, have conversations that seek to transform itself because part of the transformation process means to quote the bible now it means dying to the self and as an institution the church as a body and individuals in the church aren't always willing to die to the self and then be you know do the dying process and then rising with christ again so so but that is more a reflection of i think this is very fundamental to to what it means to you know the the Western Church because I think this is a uniquely Western um, Protestant Catholic problem. I don't think it's too present in forms of Christianity that aren't Western. No, it's very interesting what you're saying um, about dying to the self, and and what I found interesting about that specific sentence of 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 love the sinner, hate the sin, is this distinction between guilt and shame that Brené Brown makes as a shame researcher, where she says that shame has a lot to do with um, internalizing the idea that you are intrinsically bad uh, versus doing a bad thing and what is then good and bad in, in the action, in the thing that you're doing. Um, and I think that that sometimes is misunderstood, I think also, like you say, in the language um, of the church. And what was interesting about the most recent conversation that Brené Brown had on her podcast, where she actually spoke about shame as not being a constructive social justice tool, because it actually, she's proven, proven now that when someone is shamed, they actually remove themselves even more. So it divides more people. So if shame is used to teach, then less people will be able to identify with, with the teachings, which makes sense, like you said, in terms of the heteronormative way the church conducted itself um, in, in the past in South Africa, that people could not relate to to the teachings or to the church. And then a question on her conversation was specifically addressed at this role of shame in the church. And what Brown said is that they actually did a study where they they went and they looked at all different religions and they saw that a level of shame is used in the teachings and in most religions, but that in the interpretation of the text lies the difference where some congregations had a lot of shame because the teachings were interpreted by the preacher or by the leaders of the church with this kind of shame tone to it where other congregations could function without shame completely so that it actually it, it lies in the interpretation of the text and the way that the church um, the leaders of the church actually uh, read into into these texts and, and then form the teachings around that. I, I love Nicolina. I love what you're saying about the about about shame because I, of course, I love Brene Brown. I, I think now I thought now immediately of there's a Lutheran American pastor um, Nadia Balsweber who published a book either last year or the year before. Um, Shameless, where she discusses sex and sexuality in the in the church. Um, so she she um, started a launched church, Lutheran church, um, for it was called House for Sinners for Sinners and Saints. It was for you know people that you wouldn't usually consider church people. So bikers and queers and you know what I think is heaven. She established <laughs> a church for them. 
Um, so then she, fundamentally the point of the entire book is that why does the church care so much about sexual sexuality and gender performativity? Because it is the, oh wait, what did she say? It's the only thing that challenges the church. Sex is the only thing that is an actual challenge to the church. So it would need to sort of rigidify, stratify how people may have sex, you know, and, and how people may perform their gender and sexualities. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm thinking of a, um, a Latin ex-American um, scholar who published a wonderful book last year, Activist Theology, that draws on the insights of queer theology and liberation theology and also feminist theology. And um, Robin Henderson Espinoza makes the, uses this wonderful term called supremacy culture that I think really sort of grapples with the entirety of the problem that we face. And there's a problem, it's not just the patriarchy, it's not just the queer phobia, it's not just the ageism, it's, it's not just the ableism, it's a whole, it's, um, it's a whole system that's rigged against different portions of a population. And, and I think this supremacy culture tries to maintain um, the shame and, try, and use the shame as a commodity um, and sort of provides people with more privilege depending on how, how, how little shame they have, which is very funny because if I could use this example from the Bible, first thing we are taught in, in, in New Testament is that the New Testament has an honor and shame culture. So um, if you are disabled, you are, you are shamed. Um, if you're not, the more able the body you are, the more male, male you are, you are more, you are honorable. And, and that's weird because in, in our time, we sort of work with this assumption there's no honor and shame culture going on. But we do have an honor and shame culture going on. And that is maintained by supremacy culture. So I think it is helpful for when we, when we lean into this notion of vulnerability from, from Brene Brown, because it, then, then we realize there's so much liberation that takes place by leaning into vulnerability. I think we've aired a lot of these ideas and we have so much to work with and so many themes to go into. So maybe we should start moving into our cultural text and see how we can use that as a tool to, to, to further discuss these themes. So today's cultural text will be, um, drum roll, the Bible. <laughs> um, and um, Ashwin will, will read for us a little part. And then we'll also be talking just a little bit more eclectically in terms of, like we've said, the popular culture depiction um, in terms of certain artists or um, you know, certain ideas and iconography that, that feature that relate to this. Okay. A reading from the Gospel of John. The Word was first. The Word present to God. God present to the Word. The Word was God in readiness for God from day one. Everything was created through them. Nothing not one thing came into being without them. What came into existence was life, and the life was light to live by. And the life was light to live by. The light life blazed out of the darkness. The darkness couldn't put it out. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the community. We saw the glory with our own eyes, 
the one of a kind glory, like parent, like child, generous, inside and out, true from start to finish. So Ashwin, why did you choose this text with, in connection to the, the question of today? Um, what is the significance of this text to you? So I think, you know, I was, I was really thinking about what, the question is querying religion and spirituality. And so there's this amazing book that is a very helpful guide to queer theology, which is written by Patrick Cheng, Radical Love. And fundamentally makes the claim that all queer theology tries to do is um, destabilize binaries and boundaries. So in the Gospel of John, um, in this chapter, we, we read that, that the word was present with God, but the word becomes flesh. God's self becomes flesh. That binary between divinity and humanity is, is, is deconstructed, is destabilized. Um, and, and, and also the, the Gospel of John uses very imaginative language when speaking about God and speaking about um, Jesus. And it does so in very, at times, often Jesus is portrayed in very feminine roles. Um, and I think that is the beauty that, that this gospel, I think the Bible in general, but, but this gospel text has for us is that there's already some querying impetus going on and the task or the invitation, we are invited to, to further that, that querying and to give life to it in our time and for our time. Yeah, what comes out for me when you say that, and the ark is still being built here now, but um, uh, is that that idea of um, of the flesh also as a as a prominent link into into how queering can take place, and um, and also so I'm I'm curious to see also how you um, I mean interpret the text, and I'm thinking also of like the idea of just. The, the, like you say, we are, you are, the project of queering is making this, this um, excess meaning apparent. So you are, are taking what is implied and, and their uh, more tacity and then, and then making that explicit. And that's, that's also happening then, I guess, through bodies in a way. Yeah. So, and through queer bodies. And I, I read this article also about like Jesus as like, was Jesus hot? And like this thing about desire and, and Jesus his body as this like ripped guy this and this uh, you can almost think about like the homoerotic gaze or the heteronormative gaze and how we think about not only like the figure of Jesus and God's bodies but also just in terms of flesh more generally uh, when we queer so I think what's happening in, in, in this chapter is three things I think you, you mentioned embodiment which I in the last chapter of my master's thesis I I make sort of suggestions to how the church could sort of contribute to the project of querying and three things come out there. And I think this is helpful for me whenever I read um, scripture and I try to queer it is the first thing is to focus on incarnation or embodiment that God becomes flesh and dwells among us. Um, that embodiment, the notion of God having a body and being able to touch the body just sort of reminds us of the holiness of our bodies in all of its different forms. Um, the holiness of queer bodies, disabled bodies, woman bodies, all bodies are rendered holy. Um, again, doing away with the notion of shame that has been so used, so often used against certain bodies. Um, then the second thing is also that, that 
sort of the God dwells among us in time. So that notion of the eternal, that's so separate from the temporal, that is also done away with, that binary is broken. There's sort of God takes up space and time and then there's this notion of spatiality that we need to focus on the space in which we find ourselves. Um, and, but fundamentally, these three incarnation or embodiment, temporality and spatiality, fundamentally, these three deal, for me, they deal with this notion of relationality that we all are related. We cannot understand space without relation to others. Or we cannot, we cannot understand, um, I don't know, when I've said others, now immediately I thought of Judith Butler. And, but we cannot understand space and time and embodiment without, because in the other, in the other way, we come to know ourselves that much better. Mm. And I think that there's a, this interesting segue to, to Atipaturuga that just happened now, where he actually says that um, even in when you are not received, when you are rejected in space, your identity is also, in a sense, affirmed because even the rejection affirms that you exist. You know, that, which is which is interesting. He starts one of his he starts one of his um, videos like that and says that. What he then does through his art is to show utopias, to point out the lack of utopia. So almost like using these bright colors, using this place of like putting himself into spaces and making his body hyper-visual and really creating this space so that people cannot ignore him any further. So he uses, uses this rejection um, which is just interesting, like you say, with the relationality that we don't always even notice how we are affirming or not affirming someone else's existence and someone else's space in this place, in this time. Um, which is interesting. My mind just jumped to him in that sense. <laughs> we can talk I'm, about it. I, I just felt the spirit of Hegel channel me right now. Mm. Like the negation of the negation. Mm. <laughs> mm. And, and, and then now I'm off the track. Like I'm thinking of Sarah Ahmed's... Um, um, queer phenomenology and how the construction of the other sort of if, by othering you, there's so much going on and I and I absolutely love that that by rejecting you affirm and mm. and I think that is for the first time of my life I have a sort of I made I've just made sense of my role in the church now because in a sense I'm rejected but I'm staying because I still feel in some way this weird affirmation that I I need to take up space here Mm. I have space here. Mm. I own space here. I'm claiming space here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That has been the most, thank you for framing that for me. That has been so helpful now because even in the rejection, I am affirmed. Yeah, because someone cannot ignore you if you don't exist, you yeah. know? So, so Ati Pataruga, just to give a, a brief bit of background, he's a South African artist, a performance artist and multidisciplinary artist. So he actually, Jana can give us a little bit more on his bio. She like read his bio recently or maybe have it in front of her. But the way that he uses his art is very interesting because he creates these progressions of characters and he creates characters uh, where he kind of brings identities together in a mix of identity. Again, linking with the fluidity of, of queering, you know, like where there is no boundary between his male 
body and the high heels that he wears and the and the balloons and the kind of textures and the things that he puts around these characters to show their character to show their personality they all speak to creating this utopia that he doesn't see in South Africa at the moment and and also to claim space with color and with texture and with being big and bold and and kind of being like there's no way that you can reject me I mean I am so present in my presence that there's no way you can ignore me and um, what's interesting is also the like the, the use of the body that you spoke of now his body is always present or bodies are always present in his work um, as bringing this together the idea of of, of being accepted and, cre and creating fluidity and creating a utopia is also within the community. It's, it's relational. We need to do this for each other, with each other, and it, and it, it starts and, and forms in between us. Um, and therefore also has these progressions where it's just like uh, lines and lines and lines of people walking in these like dramatic outfits to claim space in that way. It's very interesting. <laughs> but also like links now, Ashwin of this like, Epiphany, aha, Eureka moment that you had is, and 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 also then of Atipatra Ruga is that he explores not only utopia but dystopia. So, um, and I think that's a that tension between utopia and dystopia of like the opposite, where um, you know a society where things have gone wrong, where uh, where and and that the fact that he points out how we share in both these utopias and dystopias with one another um and how through performance through the body you can make this like hyper visible but also challenge and like you say destabilize it so i think he also um did a performance piece where he walked in into christchurch and through the company gardens and put up all these like like Nicoline said, these colorful balloons. So it's it's interesting that, uh, like just by coincident, he also really did performative performance pieces of the church as as a way to. Um, I guess he was also practicing a bit of queer theology there, yeah, challenging yeah. that space as an institution to allow for more bodies to be present and to allow for more people to to be or to identify with the teachings and that institution. And something else I wanted to say just was interesting about the text that you read um, with the words is uh, like the, the, the kind of strangeness of, of God being this thing that we cannot really comprehend, right? It's, it's so big and so vast and so all over. And then how God became text and the text became God, mm. the word, the word became God, you know, that kind of thing. And then that, that the piece um, of, of, the, the problematics around the teaching is often has to do with the word, you know, with the interpretation yeah. of the word and how we have kind of thought that, okay, if, if God became the word and the word is God that, okay, now we understand everything about the word, right? So how, because he, and also maybe because he became physical and because he came down into space and into time, there was something more relatable about it, something more understanding that we can grasp everything about it and kind of make it our own and create these rigid lines and, and boundaries around the word because the word is God and we can read it and we can understand it. So maybe you can speak a bit towards that kind of the word and God and, and how we think we can understand it and we think, but there's often something's lost in translation and lost um, in the word. <laughs> yeah. I just, yeah. It, you know, one thing that one realizes after a few years of theology is that 
especially my friends who become ministers or now ministers, they realize that you can prepare a solid sermon, but you don't actually know what to do with it after. You don't know how to, how to lead the church afterwards. Like you spend so much time understanding the Greek and understanding the Hebrew, so much time doing the interpretive work, but then, yeah. But that, I'm using that as sort of to say, so much is lost when we don't, I think for me, it's important that one recognize that we do interpretive work in the first person singular. Mm. That I focus on what the, the limitations, my own limitations, the privilege, all of all of the things I bring to the table. Um, by doing that, by recognizing that, it sort of really helps one to see more clearly or to use them as helpful lenses and to put them aside at times to see through other people's lenses. I think that is very important. I think for so long in the Western Academy, in the Theological Academy, we've only been reading through the eyes of, 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 of white men. Mm. That when, when the feminist theologians came uh, on, onto this scene, they were sort of, but this isn't theology. This is very personal. This is not, this is not universal. And then mm. the default universal was all the time white masculinity. And it was never anything other than that. So I think what is lost in interpretation, or I think, no, remember rather said this, but I think what is enriched by interpretation is when we recognize our, our own limitations mm. and our, our privilege and the various cultural reaches that we bring to it. We, engendered richness that we bring to the text that we when we read as community i think fundamentally interpretation is so much more enriched when we read as community and allowing different voices to share their ideas and how this text speaks to them in this time mm. yeah and i think what you say now also brings that thing about firstly like the tension between language and the body so word and the body and how there's this uh, perceived separation between the two and and what you say now with by by bringing it to this this single in the more um, personal interpretation you also reconcile how bodies and words go together mm. uh, reading from whoever you know the context it was written and also the context of the, the person interpreting and once again i cannot help but think about judith butler uh, where she talks about this idea of like um and it speaks to the relationality that you mentioned earlier of how the the single subject or the singular person is already an alliance so how um when we ask of people to come and show up and she specifically talks about minority groups and and it's from an intersectional perspective of where you are expecting someone to almost um, privilege a certain aspect of identity of minority status. So if you now, if, if, if it was expected of you to only read it as a black theologian and not, and then to, so by already having to negotiate your positionality as a black and a queer and a male theologian, you as an individual uh, already uh, portrays an alliance. So she sees the, the single subject is already an alliance within the self. And then at the same time, that provides a nice gateway to think of the collective uh, or the collective alliance uh, also differently. Um, so I think it's interesting of how, the, like you say, the richness that can come from personal um, interpretations of, of the word and, and of the flesh is also to understand how we are already so relational and already an alliance mm. and how that can take shape in interpretation. Could I just, I, I think I, I, I need to add, you know, 
thank you for that because that just reminded me that when we do theology, when I think all people who believe, all all believers are theologians in some sense, that Christians generally make use of four sources when they theologize, and the sources are scripture, um, church history, tradition, um, science, or or rational thought, and then um, experiences. So fundamentally, we all are we using all four of those. It's never just scripture that one uses. Your body always plays a role in how you interpret scripture, or tradition plays a role in how I interpret. So it's never just the one. It's, I mean, in, in the Reformed tradition, we've often said no scripture is like the primary, and then every else, everything else is secondary. But even just the the structuring of that is problematic because one does not, as you said. Uh, with Judith Butler, one does not, you don't, my blackness is not subject to my queerness. I'm all the time, 24 seven, you know, when I was a few years ago, when I informed my church that I was, that I'm queer and knowing that that would have some problems for me entering ministry, um, they sent me a lovely letter that up to this day, I asked, I don't know how to make sense of it. They said, we will ordain all those who are not practicing homosexuals. Um, and then I went to one of the church leaders and I was like, what is a practicing homosexual? Because I don't understand what that means. And How then, do you practice your identity? And then um, Professor Jeremy mentioned it in the one of the classes. It was like, so when gay people brush their teeth, are they now practicing homosexuals? And, and that's just the thing. Like, it's it's really ridiculous um, how we sort of create because of supremacy culture create the system where we think that one one my my certain forms of my identity are subject to the other and i i, I agree with judith Butler completely we are we are an alliance in our individuality um i wanted to also ask you relating again to your bio how do you understand the difference between the term spirituality and religion you say spiritually a christian um, what is the difference to you? In, in, in... I think to, I don't, uh, I, I'm, I'm one of those who are very hesitant to sort of create this difference between religion and spirituality. For me, I, I'm too much of a religious scholar to see, to think there's a difference. I think it, it became very, um, it became such a, a trend recently to start saying, well, early 2000s to say, no, I'm not Christian, I'm spiritual, which I get. I think people should really identify for themselves, but fundamentally, it's still a religious conception that that you're buying into. Um, so I I use spiritually Christian as opposed to religion because to invite because I do think that Instagram or whatever social media platform is there is an invitation for others to join one. So I've used it to sort of not to sort of invite queer people in mm-hmm. um, because religion has been this demonic force that sort of that yeah that demonizes queer people so that is more of an invitation than 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 anything else not something deep mm-hmm. um could i just say something about that i i really forgot to mention at the beginning about my bio um when i use the word ontologically black um i've always you know i've grown up in cape town according to the government i've been classed a a categorized colored um and and I've, I have this weird conception of it. And for the first time, my friend wrote it into a master's thesis. 
and, and, and she and I put it on paper, but this is sort of my identity when it comes to race politics. Okay. Um, I, I, I like, I support black consciousness. So that's why I chose the term. But, so I'm a consider myself a political black, um, because of black consciousness, the black consciousness movement and black politics in general. And then I consider myself as a cultural colored. And I don't see the two as in competition um, because it, re- it becomes so easy in Cape Town particularly, it becomes so easy with the whole hardcore colored movement to sort of put the two against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that at times that section of my identity is, some, is somehow misunderstood by people as though I'm, look, I, when you grow up in where I'm from, in Israfil, where majority of the people speak Afrikaans and majority of the people are, colored and embrace the term, then you sort of, you find beauty and richness in that cultural identity. Mm-hmm. But for the, for the politics of it all, and because my time in Fismas Hall, mm-hmm. I've decided to use the term ontologically back for the race politics side. And uh, I wanted to ask you, because it is so interesting, and I mean, I think we've spoken about Fismas Hall quite a bit, in our, it always comes out implicit in our podcast and Nicolene and I reflected on that the other day because we said it's weird because now it's like five years since we was four and I can imagine between the three of us we've had very different experiences during Fismas four um, and it's funny how yeah you know, there's this there's this weird reflection coming back now regarding that and how it's difficult to separate that from Eddie student experience and how almost like our epistemology the way we we got our knowledge was just so informed by that especially in 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 fields like theology or or social sciences so i wondered if you wanted to reflect if you felt like you wanted to reflect a bit also about how you say business will help shape your identity and um also from this perspective of theology during during that time maybe i i you know i think I, I can't help but return to it often. I think Business Hall was the one event that I will probably spend the rest of my life reflecting on because it really changed who I was. It changed so much of South Africa and it changed just the entire enterprise of theology in general because all of a sudden everyone was trying to decolonize their curriculums. Five years later, none of us know what it means. We're still, str- <laughs> we're still struggling to get there. I guess we're on our way to the utopia, but... Um, <laughs> but, but I, yeah, it's... it's so, I mean, reflecting on it, it brings so much trauma back. Um, I've healed. Um, yeah. I, I think that it, it was really such a difficult time. It was such a difficult time because I was my first when 2015 happened. I was my first. It was such a difficult time. I just entered Salem Bosch. Um, you know, the, the idealism of a first student. Um, and then I was confronted with, people's actual pain that they've been experiencing for years. Um, and at that time I was still living at home. My first years I was living at home. So I had to, I had to weirdly navigate the space of going to Salem Bosch and coming back home and just seeing the material conditions that are so, so different. Um, and through that time I had to also, you know, I do one tries very difficult not to, not to let the pain overcome you. Um, so Often when I write now, I, I think very vividly about those experiences and how Fismas Falls shaped me, formed me um, to be. And also just, can I just say, the one thing that I've returned to the most is the amazing people that I met through Fismas Falls mm-hmm. who, who really challenged each other who held each other accountable, who still inspire me to this day to, to be the better 
to be a better scholar, to, to think more critically, more reflexively on how, how do we envision, how do we want to change the world, to dare even to change the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so whereas business was it, extremely painful, it was also the most promising thing for me to sort of reflect critically on what it is we want in the world, what, what does justice look like. Mm. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it is important that we continue the conversation and continue to return to the things that were stirred in that time. Like, as you say, in such a painful, heavy experience, it's sometimes difficult to then return and talk about it and, and but with the fear of re-traumatizing yourself, but then also kind of keeping the conversation alive and this project mm. of decolonization, like you say, who even knows what it looks like if, if, if we would be decolonized, but it is in the project. It is in the, that's what I always thought is decolonized. Decolonization is not about the destination necessarily that we're going to reach. It's about the constant process of asking the question about how can this thing be decolonized? That is the project of it. <laughs> And then also I'm thinking immediately when you say that is now how can we draw parallels between also the decolonizing and querying and, and what is the relationship between that if, we, if you had now the text, the, the biblical text that we read and if you think about the arts, like how, how is it a, a dual project or how do they feature into one another if you had to read that text from a post-colonial or, or a decolonizing narrative and how you know, how do you see that relationship play out? I think, you know, that's an interesting question. Because um, as I mentioned earlier, the for me, queer theology tries to advance notions of intersectionality and hybridity. And by centering, or not centering, by working from the margins in, by working from the margins of blackness, of, of to, by saying that the, the God who becomes, you know, I, I always tell people, but I do it, and I do it. I'm, I'm very intentional about this. I usually tell conservative people, if God were to become in flesh today, she would most likely be a trans black woman. Um, I mean, that is, that is what happens in, in, in the Bible. Like God chooses to become a peasant and dwells among the poor, um, political. Oh, yeah. God chooses really intentionally to be present and work for the liberation for justice. So I think, how does querying and, and decolonization coalesce? How do they come together? Is by, by centering notions, of, by using as points of departure notions of hybridity and intersectionality. Because here's what can become, here's one of the limitations of, of focusing on decolonization without being very critical of it. That this notion of, um, because we, we easily build a, an, an unhealthy ideal, um, that's that sort of becomes becomes a reflection of the current hegemonic power. So those who meet the new standard are in, and those who don't are out. And then it isn't truly decolonial because it's still sort of it, it, it yearns back to pre-colonial Africa, which is unattainable, unattainable now. Um, and so I think queering sort of because I've seen a lot of scholars are now using queer queer theology or queer theory and and decoloniality together in tandem and, and I think there's a lot of promise there yeah because the point of departure kind of like you say they, they find a similar point of departure and but it is possible for people to 
or it can be a blind spot to think about decolonizing and then neglecting the queering aspect and even in like even in Fismos 4 and in any form of public assembly or, or movements we saw that how trans bodies in at UCT I'm thinking specifically with the, the, the trans art interventions and and how the project of decolonization did uh, in essence um, also, it was violent towards trans and, and queer bodies. Mm-hmm. So by by making, yeah, by just re-emphasizing the fact that a decolonial project fails if it's not, mm-hmm. in a sense, a queer project as well, perhaps. I don't know if it can be formulated like that. But, but I, I also, like, because I'm a visual person, the way that I see colonization in my mind is literally a group of people coming in putting up borders, creating boundaries, literally cutting pieces of land into parts, closing certain spaces for for certain groups of people. So it's all about, like you've said, querying is about opening up spaces, taking away binaries, um, creating a fluidity. So in that sense, visually, it looks to me like the opposite of the colonization process because of the the borders that were created deliberately and the cutting up of spaces and the the othering you know of of groups Mm. of people and creating like even like an apartheid creating the different names and terms for different groups of people to then fall the categories you know categorizing um is very colonial so that it's just interesting visually to think of the two as querying as a kind of opposite um of, of that project can I, I, my friend is, my friend Cheryl Davis, uh, her supervisor is Professor Julie Clausens, and she's currently doing a master's thesis is on um, the biblical character Rahab in the book of Joshua and reading Rahab through the lens of um, Kritua and using queer theology and post-colonial feminist theory, feminist theology. Um, into biblical interpretation as sort of helping how does what using Rahab and Kritua to understand each other better and I think that is exactly what what's going on when you mentioned the sort of bound boundaries and building up of walls and that was like wow that I immediately thought of that and how her work which I've read sections of is so it, it sort of breaks down that boundaries of it, it reimagines Rahab and it reimagines Kritua in in much more in a much more fluid way mm-hmm. it recognizes you know Kritua who was insider and outsider of the hegemonic power and how she had to navigate that space and how i as a man have to navigate the space mm-hmm. um recently with the gender-based violence protests then there was that thing that men organized that thing on the monday and then um jamil khan tweeted and then he said you know, you can miss me on this men's march thing because my form of masculinity is not affirmed in that space. Mm-hmm. And then I have to also acknowledge that there are certain privileges that I benefit from. So we are all in some, in some sense, not we are all, many of us are in some sense, insiders and outsiders of this, of supremacy culture. Mm-hmm. I benefit as a man, even though my form of masculinity might not be affirmed by the system. But I still need to account for it. I still need to recognize it. And I still need to also do the very laborious work of of learning more life-affirming ways of of performing masculinity. Definitely, yeah, so interesting. And I, yeah, and it, I'm wondering now 
does the concept of that you mentioned briefly of queer ideality does that how does that play into this type of discussion i'm not sure how you link it or if if you uh, it probably goes more in terms of that utopia thing but um maybe we can talk about that a little bit how how do you see how do you understand that concept and how can that also help us in this conversation i think it starts with like recognizing that there's no there's no end goal mm-hmm. or, or the end it's a, it's a, the, the goalposts move as we go further on it's just a, mm-hmm. a journey it's we really become in true biblical sense we become people of the way always going towards it's a journey of becoming it's never we end somewhere mm-hmm. um so so I, I really think that uh, you know as um jose Esteban munoz's queerness is an ideality uh, well yeah queerness is not yet here and i think a lot i think really a lot about that now um i think a lot about it now particularly after you know after you i had the high of my masterpieces being done and now it's like okay i did some wonderful work and then you realize afterwards it's not that great it's like you did wonderful work yes but like there's so many limitations now and i i see so many so much promise of going forward that a queerness is truly not yet here even when the church now affirms queer people would that be a queer church mm. i think not um in south africa recently you we had the scrapping of that conscious clause in the civil union act where people working for the for the department can no longer deny lgbti people um their right to a civil union and i was like is that queerness is that is that the ideal i don't think so so i always i think that part of it is always realizing that we are going that that we're always becoming and that mm. it's difficult work it's tiring work but we need to still do it definitely sure and it's yeah, so it's yeah, very interesting because it's like so key to the the definition of the theory again it's the fluidity it's the the not solidifying anything not concretizing anything because as soon as you solidify something and say this is now it there's always yeah. the there's always the the risk that someone might not identify with what that it is and then it excludes them again so maybe we we will never be able to read, like you say there is no goal point to reach because then that will be a boundary that will be the end yeah. and what does an end mean for ever evolving identities in human beings very interesting yeah and it's also like what you it, it actually does link with what you said previously about you know navigating even your male identity in the spaces and that that like you also keep on mentioning the the work and the continuous process and we talk about um yeah this almost the subject as in pro always in progress and um wait now i lost my train of thought <laughs> um Oh, I was thinking about the idea of the sovereign subject, and mm. um, as a as a counter, because and it's interesting from a, from a religious perspective as well. But it's also if you think about the how cologne the colonial project and the um, enlightenment project that also relies on this very like heteronormative universal subject with that that boundaries that we spoke about, where it's this very stable fixed. a uh, transparent idea of um identity of how, how we conceive of ourselves as and you know you see that it's it's also reflected in the art even like what we spoke the art canon of this very fixed idea of god and the idea of um yeah this this misconception that we are so transparent to ourselves 
that we can present some kind of truth or essence to what it means to be human or to be um, Christian even. Um, and so now I'm, I'm thinking this, this notion of queer ideality also challenges that sovereign subjectivity because it, it re-emphasizes that part of being fluid and part of being queer and part of being um, it's destabilizing is also to acknowledge that, you know, we are in a way unknown to ourselves. We are always in pro progress. We are always, um, yeah, that, that clarity is not there in the, in the interpretation and truth is not necessarily the essence that we are seeking. Uh, and it's way more complex and, and messy and fleshy and whatever <laughs> than that. One of the theologians, uh, I think it's Elizabeth Stewart, mentioned that queer Christianity in, in, on, in and of itself is already a queer thing because, I mean, the way, if, if, you, if we really were to read the accounts of Christianity and its historical development, um, then one comes to the conclusion, years, we're following literally a guy who was not married in the first century, Palestine. I mean, that's queer. That's, that's queer. So that's some really queer shit. Um, you, we, then there's this weird Paul guy who's very much in, I mean, really has an obsession with other people's sex lives, which is very queer in that time. Um, so if we, I mean, so Christianity is a, is a queer thing. And then I am in love with tradition. So one of my favorite theologians is John Calvin. And he starts his very dense book, um, The Institutes, with this fundamental point that knowledge of self and knowledge of God goes together. That we cannot truly know God without knowing ourselves. So the more we, the more we evolve into us, or the more we become ourselves, the more we can lean into the mystery of God. And I think that right there is it. That uh, we are invited to. I think that is, if anything, if religion is anything, it's an invitation to immerse oneself into, to immerse you into yourself, but also to recognize that the self is it, is itself a mystery. Mm. And and also that a some a some some kind of death of the self is required. So the mm -hmm. ego self needs to die. But there's a kind of there's a kind of looking into yourself that it that is required. But that looking into yourself is gazing inwards without prescribing what you're going to find. So it's not the it's not the so I am that. So the categories that we create for ourselves like. I am extrovert, I am this, I am that. We think we understand ourselves because of all of the I am that's that we, that we know of ourselves, right? But that is actually the things that we need to let go of in order to glimpse mm. the mystery of ourselves. Because yeah. also if we're holding on to our identifiers and the things that we describe ourselves with, we are continuously kind of creating this boundary and this border yeah. around the frame with which we see the world. And, and we don't allow for the things that, is there that we don't even recognize or that we can't even see or can't name yet. Um, so that's interesting, like the looking into the self and the dying of the self and the mystery of the self and the knowing of God. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I mentioned a lot about the, the laborious work and how painful and tiring it is, but it's so much, it's, it's joyful work. I find so much joy, not only getting to know myself better, but also just getting to know other people better, loving people in ways that, were foreign to me before it's very it's wonderful we're creating communities sustaining communities in in this fashion of of aligned not even aligned sorry that bad language but sort of co-creating a space where people can become themselves that's that's mm -hmm. some 
that's really good stuff there. That's, there's some love there that's, that's so embracing, that takes up so much of you, that just energizes one to keep on going. Absolutely. Like in the project of, of, of querying and, and looking out to the world with this lens that is open, that is fluid, you are creating a space for people to be authentic because you are not telling them when they enter the room who they are expected to be um, and therefore they, are, they can just be. Um, of course, there's a lot of love and vulnerability and like niceness in that. <laughs> I completely relate with that. Yeah, and it's also nice how, like you said, and I, when you said that, I mean, then I was also, yeah, that is kind of how we imagine, I guess, the church or a function of the church uh, in that way. Um, not as a utopia, but like we said, as a both, I like you said, it's both joyful and it's difficult. and and how um, that really happens in community and in, in, in coming, coming together through this and creating, yeah, holding, holding that space almost um, then becomes the important part of it, I guess. I mean, I'm equally confused because I, I also still try to figure out where I stand in terms of churches and things like this, but, but yeah, you've been, it's been helpful through you to also kind of rethink what that church space could mean um, if it's a continually queered space. Yeah. I think, though, for, for, for good or for worse, there's, churches are problematic a lot. Very problematic. <laughs> um, but there is this beauty that takes place in the church community that many people find. I, you know what I find? You know the one question I return to is why do queer people so try to why do they choose to identify as Christians? That is the one question I guess all of my scholarship will be about. Like why with its history, with all of the oppression, why would you choose to identify? Um and then they tell me, no, but so much beauty happens. I enjoy the community. And then I realize that part of the sense of community is also that queer people have formed chosen families, you know? That itself is a form of some type of church of mm. the orthodox theologians will of course call me out on this but <laughs> that that sense of community that 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 the presence of mystery of beauty of joy of love that that is it's that is healing mm. um and i take my cue i am a very i'm a very biblical christian i take my cue from jesus and last time i checked he hung out with everyone and everything he was the one drinking the most at the parties he was the one turning water into wine. So I, I want the best of both worlds when it comes to this. I want the very difficult work of suffering and I want the work of, of attending a good prayer, attending a good cry. Um, these two must go together in order for life to be, to be fulfilling. Definitely. Um, so I think maybe as a, as a coming home a question or as a, as a last thoughts question, because I feel like we've really delved really nicely into all of the different aspects of the conversation now and, and unpacked some of the interesting issues. And I, I must say, I feel very inspired and hopeful. So I hope that our, um, our audience also feels that way after this conversation. But we like to bring the conversation to a close with a South African focus in the context of South Africa and maybe linking back to that, the role that the, the church played in the past and what, what, what mission is there in South Africa or within this conversation? Can you say last closing thoughts within querying of religion and Christianity in South Africa? What is, what is the project look like? Um, what do you see for our country? 
So in the academy uh, right now, all the more, a lot of theologians are doing some work on queer theology in South Africa. And I'm quite excited because a lot of the people are black trans and a lot of people are black. It's not just your, your usual white um, queer theologians. There's now a lot of black, the black queer theologians that I'm really excited about on, in the academic front. In churches, I'm seeing all the more that a lot of people are challenging church hegemonic structures about the ordination of LGBTI people. So there is hope in the, on that front. Um, uh, and then, of course, I think what, when we have this conversation about churches, we tend to focus on your more mainline Protestant mm -hmm. churches. Um, there's a lot of promise I'm seeing in African-initiated churches on how they are already having queer people um, leading churches. Um, so there's there's a lot of things going on there, and when it on ordinary religious people, um, there's a lot of hope. I'm seeing all the more communities forming, creating, and sustaining themselves, um, where queer people are affirmed, and where the rights um, and the rights are not only protected but also promoted of queer people. So I'm seeing a lot of promise on the South African landscape. Of course, um, queerness isn't ideal. We are not, queerness is not good here. Mm. Ashwin, for, for people that want to follow more on, I mean, all these amazing insights and, you know, to, 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 to kind of have a look out for the work that, you, that you've done already as a queer theologian and just, a, I guess, a, a public theologian to, a, I don't know if you identify, I don't know, if they, I know there's tricky things when it comes to that, but... Um, <laughs> Maybe if you want to, we always give an opportunity just to like plug yourself a little bit, like where can people read what you write and or maybe your Instagram or something like that. So you may follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle for both are Ashwin Tyson. Um, and my blog, um, ashwintyson.wordpress.com. That is where I will be present. Please don't feel free to DM me. I happen to be single for time being. <laughs> that's that's the takeaway from this whole episode is slide into those DMs. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much for the, the generosity of your time and for having such an engaging and interesting conversation with us and really opening our minds in terms of spirituality and 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 um, Christianity and uh, the project of queering and, and also inspiring us with so much hope. Thank you for holding this space. It's been amazing. Just a few more things before we sign off. We are so grateful that you listened to the public airing of our thoughts. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please do so. Rate and review us if you enjoy our content. This way you help us by making it easier for other listeners to find us. As always, we would love to hear what you think about the concepts, theories, texts and practices discussed in this podcast. So please reach out to us either through Instagram at Eret underscore podcast, through our Eret podcast Facebook page or via email at eretpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find all these links in the show notes below. If you would like to get a short email from us sharing resources, related content and any other fun stuff that we don't share in the podcast, please go to our website at nvcollective.space forward slash air hyphen it and subscribe.
If you are interested in supporting this project, you can also do so at nbcollective.space forward slash air hyphen it. And remember, just like laundry, sometimes putting those stuffy ideas out in the air can help freshen them out. Until next time, stay stimulated. stimulated.